There are two overarching principles that frame the 2,500 years of Buddhist wisdom and understanding. And these are the principles of relative and ultimate truth. Relative truth is the world of our conventional reality. It's the world of concepts and language. It's the world of subject subject and object, of self and other. And all the familiar experiences of our lives are contained within this relative truth of conventional reality. Ultimate truth sees the same world quite differently. The level of ultimate truth, there is no subject-object separation. In fact, there are no things at all. In its very deepest aspect, the Buddha talked of the ultimate reality as the unmanifest, the unformed, the unborn, the undying. As an example of these two truths and how they work together and relate together, Imagine for a moment you're being in a movie theater engrossed in some very good film. You're sitting in the theater totally engrossed in the story. And then perhaps, you know, in a particular moment you glance up and you see the beam of light, you know, being projected on the screen. And you have this moment's realization that that reality which you were so engrossed in a moment before is not really happening at all. There's nobody actually on the scene, on the screen, getting chased or getting killed or falling in love or being born or dying. It's really just a lot of colored lights being projected on the screen. And if you could imagine one step further, imagine what it would be like if there were light projected and there was no screen for it to land on. What would that experience be like? This example of relative and ultimate truth at the relative level, all of these things are happening, we're very engrossed in it. On the ultimate level, none of it is happening. Was expressed so deeply and poignantly uh, at the time of the death of His Holiness Karmapa, who Sharon mentioned the other night, the 16th Karmapa. He died in Zion, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. You know, his body was riddled with cancer had a lot of students and disciples around him, and they were obviously upset and grieving the loss. And at one point, he turned to them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. Well, that's an amazing understanding of the union of the relative and absolute ultimate levels. On the relative level, the body was dying and full of cancer and all of that. And on the ultimate level, of his understanding, and he was a great master, he was able to say, don't worry, nothing happens. 
So tonight I'd like to explore a bit these two different levels and how in the end we can understand them as expressions of each other, not as two separate things, but actually the union of the two. There are some profoundly conditioned concepts that bind us, that often imprison us in the relative conventional world. I'd like to give you a few examples of these concepts and how powerfully they condition our mind and condition our understanding and how they keep us really imprisoned in the relative level. I'll mention just a few of them. There are many. But a few of the concepts that are so deeply conditioned in us, there's the concept of place. You know, that the, the idea that this earth, this country, you know, is divided into separate states, separate countries, separate nations, and people actually go to war, you know, over these mm-hmm. boundaries, because people invest so much reality in these boundaries. One of the striking things that was uh, mentioned by many of the astronauts you know, as they were circling the globe was really a mystical, almost a mystical sense or experience of the unity of the planet Earth. They didn't see boundaries of countries. Their boundaries are a concept that we've created. And to some extent, they may serve some useful purposes. As with all the concepts I'll mention, it's not that they don't have their uses, but they don't reflect some ultimate truth, some ultimate reality. They're a construct of our own creation. I mean, our attachment to sense of place can get so strong. You know, and we we can see this in the play of nationalism in the world, but it even gets more ridiculous than that. I've heard of people who had to go to therapy when their area code changed. (laughs) I remember, it was even out in California when, I think I have this right, I, I may have forgotten a little bit, but when Berkeley went from 415 to 510. (laughs) That was major. (laughs) The concept of place, we get really attached to it in trivial ways, in in very deep, deep ways with, with strong consequences. Perhaps an even stronger concept that influences our lives and plays out in the world in so many ways is the concept of ownership. We have the idea, we and others have the idea that we actually own things. You know, Mark Twain told the story of, uh, he was telling the story of uh, this group of horse traders in Russia, but he told the whole story from the horse's point of view. (laughs) And the horses never had the idea, even for a moment, that they were owned by anybody. You know, they were in relationship to various people, humans, who treated them in various ways, but the concept of being owned never entered their heads. And yet, 
we can invest so much in this, sometimes with disastrous consequences. You know, some, some years ago, I read the book, uh, you may be familiar with, King Leopold's Ghost. And it was basically the story of King Leopold of Belgium, who declared himself with the agreement of the political powers of the time, declared himself the owner of what became called the Belgian Congo. And it was just like his personal colony. And the unbelievable you know, injustice that happened you know, born out of that concept, that this one person owned this and owned all the people and owned all the resources, And everybody in the world agreed. I mean, it wasn't just one aberration, you know, because people are very attached to this idea. And we may think we're not quite so attached, but just imagine what it would be like if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting in your cushion. <laughs> I'll bet there would be a moment. <laughs> You know, even in this context, somehow we just claim this possessiveness, you know, and think that it has some inherent reality to it, where really it's just a construct of our minds, and it, it binds us to this world of relative, relative conventional reality, often with a lot of struggle. I had one experience years ago, which, in which I could finally see the conceptual nature of ownership, possessiveness, and in a moment free myself from a lot of suffering, it was when I had just come back from my years of practice in India, and I was teaching that first summer school at Naropa in 1974. Maybe some of you were even there. It was, it was like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it was the first big gathering of people interested in Eastern thought and, and practice, and Trungpa Rinpoche was there, and Ramdas, and there was this huge, huge gathering. And I was there teaching, it was my first teaching, and they had given me this small kind of apartment to live in. Well, I was the first one of my friends back from India, and while I was teaching there that summer, many of my friends, Sharon included, uh, also made their way back to America, and of course nobody had a job, and nobody had a place to live. And so what was the thought? Oh, let's go visit Joseph in Boulder. <laughs> he has a place. <laughs> so all these friends started, you know, arriving in Boulder and just camping out on my living room floor. And it took a while. I mean, at first, you know, I was busy. I was working quite hard, teaching a lot of classes in the day, and kind of thought I needed my space, and so I was a little irritated at them all. You know, why don't they get a job? <laughs> <laughs> but at a certain point, I mean, there they were. <laughs> and my mind just, it kind of did a little uh, switch. And I realized that the problem was coming because I had this idea that it was my apartment. And if I could let go of that idea, then it was just myself and all these friends sharing a space as we had done for years in India. 
where it had not been any problem at all. You know, it was quite, it was quite nice. But as long as I had the idea it was mine, that's when the suffering arose. When I let go of that idea, we had a, we had a good summer. Okay, concepts of place, concepts of ownership. Another concept that very much locks us in to the world of relative truth, relative reality, is a concept that so conditions our lives, is the concept of time. Now, we have created the notion of time, of past and future. And it's really interesting, and we're just living, you know, we're living that out as if this is just how things are, and very rarely do we actually stop and look to see in our experience, not as a concept, what these terms mean. Now, what is our experience of past? We're sitting here, minding our own business, and certain thoughts come, come in the mind. They're memories, recollections, remembrances. The thoughts arising in the mind. We create a concept, past, we invest a reality in this concept, and then somehow there's a mental gymnastic that takes place, and we take this concept which we've created and somehow kind of toss it back behind us as if the past is back there as a reality, forgetting that our only experience of past is as a thought and feeling in the moment. Now, I'm not talking, and I don't I don't mean to engage in a kind of metaphysical discussion on the nature of time. I'm talking very much on a pragmatic experiential level of how we experience it. And again, this is not something to believe. It's something for you to really look in your own experience and see for yourself. We do the same thing with future. You know, we have certain kinds of thoughts or images, plans, anticipations, imaginings, you know, we create a concept for those kinds of thoughts or images. We call it future, toss it out ahead of us, and create this notion that the future is a reality out there waiting for us. Well, most of us in our lives, and you have seen this, I think, very clearly in these few days, understand we are carrying past and future around. It's like we're carrying mountains on our shoulders. We live most of our lives lost in thoughts of the past, lost in thoughts of the future. And it's not light, because we're investing reality in those concepts. You know, and so we are tremendously burdened in our lives. And yet, when we look carefully, and we see that the only way we're experiencing it is as a thought in the moment, have you ever tried to weigh a thought? It's really light. <laughs> really, it's almost nothing. When we see them for what they are, then, as with all the other concepts, we can use them. It's not that we discard the concept, they're useful, but we see them for what they are, and we're not giving it a reality that it doesn't have. Again, just an, another example of how the concepts of time really influences our present reality. 
just these days on retreats, on retreat. You know, have you had any thoughts like, oh, four more days. (laughs) If I have to watch one more breath. (laughs) You know, and so we create this concept of four more days, and we create a concept. All it is is a thought in the moment. But it's, it's sort of like this, one of these cartoon bubbles. You know, we create this thought and then jump into it and live in that thought. Four more days, ah, I'll never make it. Or it could be the other way. You know, maybe it's, you're having a good sitting and you think, oh, four, two more days. Oh, too bad, it's so short. And all of that is just mental creations based on a concept of time because we're not seeing that really in the moment, it's just this momentary blip of a thought arising and passing. Now we're going to get really tricky because we do this not only with past and future, we do it with the present. We create a concept of present moment and we can get attached to that. There's some verse from the Dhammapada, which really has the, the capacity to just open the mind up. Let go of the past. Let go of the future. Let go of the present. And cross over to the further shore. With the mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. You know, there's just that moment of really dropping into a more ultimate reality because we're not even creating the relative reality of present. Concepts of place, of ownership, of time. We're very hooked in to the conventional reality, the relative reality, through concepts of self-image. You know, we have a lot of images of ourselves that we've created of who we are in the world, of how we present ourselves to ourselves, to other people. And as soon as we identify with any image at all, with any self-image of any kind, a good one, a bad one, it's already a contraction. It's already a limitation. You know, I don't know if you remember, when I was in grade school, we used to do these plaster of Paris casts. You know, they had these rubber molds, and you would pour the plaster of Paris into it, and out would come some figure. Well, a self-image is like pouring ourselves into a mold, and then we wonder why we feel constrained because we have created a concept about who we are and then are limited by that concept. It can be worldly self-images, you know, I'm a great success, or I'm a total failure, you know, or I'm brilliant, or I'm stupid, or I'm whatever. So we have all kinds of worldly presentations. We also have spiritual ones. The same Identification with self-image happens right here on retreat. You know, the good yogi, bad yogi syndrome. 
at that first uh, retreat with Upandita in 84, it was a great retreat just because we got so many stories out of it. (laughs) (laughs) It was really horrible, but (laughs) we got a lot of stories. At some point, we're going along, and again, every, you know, it was really strict, and everybody's really practicing very intensively. And after some time, I see people writing in little notebooks. And they were all the people who I thought were practicing really well, you know, the good yogis. So my mind started going on this trip. Oh, Upandita asked them to do something special, you know, and do something with their little notebooks. And I felt terrible about myself. You know, oh, I'm not good enough. You know, he didn't ask me to do that. And then a week or two went by, and then I saw some of the kind of sloppy yogis, you know, writing in their notebooks. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, I must be a great yogi. I must be so good that Upandita thought I didn't need a notebook. So my mom was just, you know, back, a good yogi, bad yogi. At the end of the retreat, I found out Upandita didn't ask anybody to use a notebook. People were just doing it to, you know, make a few notes about their sitting so that they could give reports. But my mind, you know, had created all of these projections and self-images that really was a lot of suffering. There are some self-images which we probably don't even see as a self-image because they seem so fundamental to who we are. You know, and so that gets interesting to see how we can get caught or imprisoned on this level of relative truth, conventional truth, by things which seem so basic. Things like age and gender and race and culture. Well, they don't seem like a concept. What color is your mind? Is your mind black, white, yellow, brown? How old is your breath? (laughs) Oh, my breath is 58. (laughs) Is the pain in your knee male or female? It's not to say that these concepts don't point to differences of experience, because obviously they do. But when we don't connect with the more fundamental, ultimate realities underneath, when we simply stay on that level of concept, of race, of gender, of age, of culture, then we're really fostering the divisiveness and separation that we see so rampant in the world. It's because we're not dropping down from that level of concept, even some very fundamental ones, to what's in common underneath. Concepts of place, of ownership, of time, of self-image, the deepest conditioning we have, and the one that is the source of so much suffering, suffering for ourselves and suffering in the world, centers around our attachment to the concept of self, not simply self-image, but to the very concept of self, of I. 
the idea that there is someone lurking behind this flow of experience to whom the experience is happening. And most of us are living in this way of understanding, as if there's a little I in here, and all experience is referring back to it. We create this reference point, we create a reference point for all experience, and then call that mental fabrication, self, I, and Joseph. But when we look carefully at experience, and this is really where the meditation is leading us, when, we're, when we look carefully, when we pay attention to how things are actually happening, we see for ourselves, not philosophically or abstractly, we see for ourselves that self, that I, is a concept. It's an idea. It's a concept about an appearance. It's not something with any inherent existence. So I'll give you just a few examples, uh, you know, which may help illuminate this. Now think of you know, some beautiful mosaic. You know, there's a mosaic of you know, maybe one of those Byzantine... Uh, you know, there's a mosaic and there's an appearance of a person in the mosaic. You know, a man or a woman or an animal or whatever. But there's really no inherent reality, even on the level you know, of, of it being a picture, that there's no inherent thingness to the person. What we're seeing is an appearance due to the relationship of certain elements, certain parts. These things come together and it appears to us as a man or a woman or an animal, whatever. But there's no thing in itself apart from the appearance, which is the man or the woman. Well, what we're calling self, what I'm calling Joseph, is an appearance of this mosaic of elements, of mind and body elements, which are constantly changing. It's not as if there's a real little Joseph inside. <laughs> or even a big little Joseph. <laughs> Joseph self is a convenient designation. Again, I'm not suggesting we get rid of the concept. It's useful, it's helpful. But we want to go beneath the relative conventional level to really see what's there. Another example. And there are several. You know, we go outside after a rain, we might see a rainbow. And we look up at the sky and we have that moment of, of happiness, and, you know, it's beautiful. We have that moment of delight. But what is a rainbow? You know, when we look carefully, we see that a rainbow is not something in and of itself. It's an appearance due to light and moisture and air coming together in a certain way. The conditions come together and a rainbow appears. The conditions change, the rainbow disappears. 
Well, this is kind of a nice image because we could think, each one of us could think of ourselves as a rainbow, as being a rainbow. We have the same, the same level of existence. Self, I, Joseph, each one of us is on the level of rainbow. I couldn't possibly let this retreat go by without the last example. of the Big Dipper. (laughs) Not that I'm attached to this concept, (laughs) to this example, but it's such a good one. You know, we go outside at night, it's a clear night, look up at the sky, we see the constellation, the Big Dipper, if we're at all familiar, you know the constellations. But is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? No, there's no Big Dipper. <laughs> you know, there are points of light in a certain relationship to one another, and we've created a concept, Big Dipper. You know, and then we... And if you think, oh, well, I'm not really... I, I know that's a concept. You know, Try going outside at night, looking up at the sky, and not seeing the Big Dipper. It's really hard. I mean, I've given this talk for 30 years <laughs> in this example of Big Dipper. And I look, it's very hard not to see it because we've been so conditioned to see in a certain way. Well, if it's that hard not to see Big Dipper, you can imagine that it takes some practice to not see this as self, as I. But really, Joseph's self-I is just like Big Dipper. It's a concept that's describing a certain constellation of elements, of mind and body elements. For many people, this teaching on selflessness, or in in other Buddhists' uh, context, it's also referred to as emptiness, the Buddhist notion of emptiness, emptiness of self. For many people, this is the most puzzling aspect of the teachings. You know, impermanence is pretty easy to understand and to experience. Suffering, as Steve so clearly laid out (laughs) last night, it's not hard to get. But selflessness, I mean, if there's no self, who came to the retreat? You know, if there's no self, who falls in love, and who gets angry, and who has memories? And all these questions are the questions that arise as soon as we start talking about selflessness. What does it actually mean to say there is no self, no I? To understand it, to begin to understand it, we need to explore the second level of reality. We need to go from the level of relative truth to the level of ultimate truth. Because all of those concepts that I mentioned, of place, of ownership, of time, past, future, present, of self-image, of self, all of them operate on the level of conventional reality. And we live in that world. So again, I'm not suggesting we stop using them, but we don't want to be imprisoned by them, as we often are. So to understand the meaning of selflessness, 
really we need to explore what the level of ultimate truth is like. Not, again, not philosophically, but in our experience. There's one Tibetan teaching which in a very beautiful way expresses various aspects of ultimate truth, which in that tradition is called, another, another expression for it is nature of mind or mind nature. And the teaching says the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So this is one description of this ultimate level of reality. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So intrinsically empty, what does this mean? For many people, it doesn't sound all that appealing, you know, empty. It kind of sounds like maybe a gray vacuity, you know, or an undifferentiated nothingness. But that's not what emptiness means in the Buddhist context, which in the Buddhist uh, teachings, emptiness is a very rich and subtle and nuanced idea. And it perhaps can be best understood, or most simply understood, as the absence of self-centeredness. Now, we usually think of self-centeredness as being a personality problem. You know, somebody's really self-centered. We might suggest, you know, our self-centered friends to go to therapy to kind of help out a little bit. But really, self-centered has a much more fundamental meaning. It's when we create or hold a sense of self to be at the center of our lives. That is self-centered. A reference point for everything we think and feel and sense. my body, my thoughts, my feelings, my sensations, everything refers back to this self-center. And we usually live our lives in this gravitational field of self-center, you know, where we're just circling around our hopes and our fears and our desires and our wants and our work and our relationships, and it's all circling around this center of self. revolving around desires for ever new experiences as if somehow the next new experience is going to gratify finally, finally fulfill this self-center. Of course, it's an endless process. It was expressed by one writer, Wei Weiwei, he said, that's like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> and until it realizes it's not there, it keeps on barking. Well, we're barking. 
But through some sustained practice, as we develop the powers of mind, of concentration, of mindfulness, of investigation, we begin to leave this familiar self-referential orbit. And we're slowly drawn into the gravitational field of the Dharma. We begin to get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness rather than the self-center of I and mine. We really begin to glimpse this, to taste it, to touch it. And this then becomes the new force of gravity in our lives. One teacher, her name was Jocelyn King, she made the remark that it's so much better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. You know, when we start revolving around the understanding, the realization of emptiness, that's actually when we come to some peace in our lives. The poet and mystic Rumi said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. And so that's really that union of relative and absolute levels. We do have an address here. And we live and act and relate in the world as self and other and all our relationships. But even as we're living in this relative world of conventional reality, can we abide in the nowhere that we come from? So we experience this emptiness of self, this zero center, in many different ways. And I think it's important to begin to see how we can actually experience it, so it's not just another concept or another idea. We do have intimations of it in our lives, just in our ordinary lives. You know, have you had the experience sometimes of simply, of those times when we just enter into an effortless flow of experience? It might be in sport, or it might be in music or in art, or in painting, or even in work, you know, where we just, all of a sudden, it feels as if we're carried along by the flow. You know, it seems as if things are going on without us, that they're just happening, and much better for it. You know, there's a kind of spontaneity. Well, that's an intimation of selflessness, where we're getting the self out of the way. Sometimes we're reminded of this experience of the empty zero center uh, by our teachers, either through actual teachings or just through their presence. I don't know whether any, any of us have mentioned in this retreat, but most of you are probably aware of our teacher Deepama, the woman, woman from Calcutta, uh, great, great woman. And she was extraordinary, huge amount of suffering in her life. And the suffering propelled her, in practice, to the most amazing attainments, uh, both of awakening, enlightenment, and powers of mind. She was this extraordinary woman, manifesting as complete simplicity and emptiness and love and loving-kindness. And one of the 
the images that just stays in my mind so vividly when she was visiting IMS. She came, she would come into the hall, you know, to give teachings every night. And she would come in and she would just bow to the Buddha image. And watching her bow to the Buddha, it was like watching emptiness bow to emptiness. As there was no one there. And in the emptiness, or out of the emptiness, was this amazingly beautiful love and devotion. That's the power of emptiness. Where there's not a self-center, where there's not an I-center. And so sometimes a teacher can just, by their presence, sort of illuminate the possibility of a space. Sometimes it's through a direct teaching. There was one student of Kala Rinpoche, you know, who was this great Tibetan master, uh, who had studied with him in uh, India, and then had gone back to Canada and was living you know, way out in someplace, but without in Saskatchewan or Alberta or you know, someplace where there was almost no Dharma practice going on at least at that time, and this was quite a few years ago. And she wrote a letter to Rinpoche saying that the only thing that sustains me in my practice is holding you in my heart. You know, so she was really, it was really important for her. And then some weeks later she gets a card back from Rinpoche with just one line on it. The nature of the heart is emptiness. (laughs) (laughs) But then, a couple of weeks later, another note came, (laughs) which said, when you practice the Holy Dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. But that sun of wisdom and great joy shine only when we realize the nature of the heart is emptiness. She needed to let go of that holding, that attachment, to drop into the realization of that openness and that joy. So sometimes teachers can really, just with the right words at the right time, illuminate it. We also experience emptiness, this lack of self-center in our meditation practice. And in one sense, it's what our meditation is all about. You know, as our awareness, our mindfulness, our concentration gets more stable and refined, we just see with increasing clarity and precision the insubstantial, impermanent nature of all phenomena. We start seeing things as arising and vanishing so quickly. The Buddha talked of how things arise and vanish 17 trillion times a moment. Sometimes I wonder how he counted them. (laughs) Because it's a fast fast count. And I don't know whether we ever get to experience 17 trillion, but in our own practice, as it settles and as it deepens, 
you know, as our mind gets more refined, we do see this very, very rapid arising and passing of various sensations and thoughts and feelings and images, and it's all going so, so quickly. We see that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. I mean, in the moment of it ar- it's arising, it's gone. How could it possibly be a self-center? There's nothing there. It's all in this impermanent, insubstantial process. And so this is something for us to realize, and we do realize it. Which is why we've been urging, you know, over these days, this level of insight really comes from developing a closeness of attention. I've said in in many of my groups, you know, there's a meditative disease which is called more or less mindfulness, where we're kind of mindful, we're kind of there, but we're not we're not there precisely, carefully, exactly. And this doesn't mean being tight and grim. It means dropping, settling back into the moment and just with it's like with infinite care opening to what's happening. And in that and it can be as simple as the movement of an arm or a leg, the simplest things or the breath. In that care we begin to experience this very rapid flow of phenomena and taste that experience of emptiness, emptiness of self. So sometimes we get an intimation of emptiness in our ordinary lives and just, you know, those moments of effortless flow. Sometimes a teacher either illuminates it through their presence or points it out. Sometimes we experience it through our own meditation practice which is where it gets most stabilized. Certain Buddhist traditions emphasize another aspect of emptiness, which I would just like to touch on briefly. And this is found a lot in the Thai forest tradition, in the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, in many of the Zen teachings. And that is the pointing to the empty sky-like nature of the mind. So it's not so much about the insubstantiality of phenomena, but rather the empty, open, space-like nature of mind itself. And the great Tibetan teacher, Padmasambhava, he's actually Indian, who is an Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet. This is a teaching, it's a very direct teaching from him. He said, it is certain that the nature of mind is empty, and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. You should look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. And so it's very instructive just to to follow that teaching, to do that teaching, to look at the nature of one's own mind. It's not so easy to do. It takes some stillness and some awareness. The difficulty of it was expressed very aptly by the Polish Nobel Prize poet. Uh, Probably won't get her name exactly right. Wisława Zimborska. 
she, she, she won the Nobel Prize some years ago, and she's a wonderful poet, and she said, there is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. Yeah, and I love that line because it's like we're so attached to the everything that the nothing is hidden quite nicely. Well, looking into that empty, open, space-like, sky-like nature of the mind happens when we let go of our attachment, our clinging, to all the things that are arising. The nature of mind is not just empty. It's also naturally radiant. And radiant here means the knowing, cognizing quality. So this is the innate wakefulness and awareness of the mind which is free of any clouds of ignorance. And when we're free of ignorance, the nature of mind is innately wakeful. It's this union of emptiness and cognizance emptiness and knowing. Some years ago, I picked up a book which looked interesting. I picked it up because of the title. Uh, The title was The Nothing That Is. And it was a book on the history of the number zero. But the title is so... So I started reading the book and actually after the first few lines, it lost me. But the first two lines in the book, for me, were great. <laughs> and it expressed this union, not, not intentionally, but I found there was a wonderful expression of this union of emptiness and cognizance of awareness, which is the nature of our minds. It's not something out there. This is the nature of our mind. The first, the opening line of the book said, look at zero and you see nothing, but look through it and you see the world. Zero, the nothing that is. Look for zero, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. That's our mind. This is could be called the cognizing power of emptiness. To realize this, to experience this, we need to practice the essential teaching of the Buddha where he summed everything up in one line. And so if you've forgotten everything else, just remember this, one line. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So that we're not creating the self-center, but are abiding in the zero-center. And there's an image which describes this movement from delusion, from ignorance to awareness, from ignorance to wakefulness. And it's 
the image of ice and water. As we all know, ice is hard, it's frozen, it's solid. Ice is when we're lost in our thoughts, when we're lost in past, lost in future, imprisoned by concepts. That's all the nature of ice. When we're identified with anything as being I or mine, that's ice. Identified with the body, identified with sensations, thoughts, feelings, images, with awareness itself. Any identification with anything is that contraction into ice. And watch during the course of the day just how often this happens. You know, we can be going along quite happily and then just in a moment we feel that contraction of reaction, of wanting, of desire, of judgment where we get caught. Water represents the nature of awareness. Free of self-center. Water is unfrozen, unfixated. It's fluid. Now there's one great discovery here that is tremendous good news. And that is that water, the nature of awareness, the nature of mind, is nothing other than melted ice. It's not something else that we have to get. It's already here that we come back to when we let go of attachment to anything at all. It's like that moment of coming out of a movie theater, having been totally lost in the story, and in that moment of waking up, we realize, oh, that was just a movie. That's the moment from ice to water. Or when you're sitting and you come out from being lost in some mind drama, you know, for however long, and realize, that was just thoughts. That's the moment of ice to water. Of course, we have to be careful because sometimes we think we're actually in that open state of water, that open state of awareness, and it's really not water at all, it's slush. (laughs) Because there are very subtle attachments that we may not even be aware of Sometimes we can get attached to subtle states of mind, subtle states of consciousness. We get attached, identified with awareness itself. That's slush. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not even awareness. And in that state of openness is when we realize the nature of mind inherently empty, naturally radiant, and last, ceaselessly responsive. And this is where we circle back to the relative level. Because we see in this openness of mind, the natural response, we could say the spontaneous activity of emptiness is compassion. When we're not self-centered, there's nothing to protect and nothing to defend and nothing to aggrandize. In that openness, 
that empty, open awareness, free of any clinging, the natural response is one of compassion. There was a great Tibetan master of the last century, his name was Kensi Rinpoche. He said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So it's not something, compassion is not something we have to do. It's not an activity of self. It actually is the activity of selflessness. And this understanding that compassion is the expression of emptiness gives birth, gives rise to the very rare flower of what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Pali and Sanskrit word, literally means awakened heart. And it's the motivation and the understanding that our practice in our lives is not only for ourselves. It's the motivation that we undertake the practice and that we live our lives for the benefit and the welfare and the happiness of all beings. And this is what joins together, brings together the level of relative truth and the, rel- and the level of ultimate truth. Out of emptiness comes compassion. The union of these two, as one, as one teacher said, relative bodhicitta is compassion, Ultimate bodhicitta is emptiness. When these two are realized, enlightenment is unavoidable. This is our practice. So let's sit for a few minutes. just in these few moments, sit in a space of non-doing, just simple non-doing, letting everything arise and pass by itself, the breath, the sounds, the sensations, nothing to do. visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. 
in the Dalai Lama.